name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. The US Treasury market is the oil that keeps the wheels of the global financial markets rolling, but regulators have become increasingly concerned about its capacity to function effectively during periods of market stress. For instance, during the dash for cash in March 2020, when extreme selling pressure in the face of a global pandemic led to a sharp decline in liquidity, prompting the Federal Reserve to step in. Policymakers are, not surprisingly, looking at this issue closely, and one of the solutions that's gained traction in regulatory circles is increased clearing of US Treasury securities. The US Securities and Exchange Commission took up the reins in September 2022, publishing proposed rule amendments that would, among other things, require Treasury clearinghouses to compel their members to clear certain cash Treasury securities and repos. That's a big change and it will reverberate throughout the financial system, including collateral management and derivatives, which is why we're returning to this topic for this episode. Here with me is Scott Amalia, ISDA's CEO. Scott, it's roughly one year since the SEC's Treasury clearing proposal, which I guess in itself speaks volumes about the importance of this issue. That's right. The U.S. Treasury market is the beating heart of the financial markets. So it's right that the regulators are taking their time to carefully consider all the options and issues, as well as comments uh, provided by the membership. Proponents say that increased clearing will reduce counterparty credit risk. It will boost transparency and improve balance sheet capacity, as well as improve financial stability and resilience. On the other hand, It would come with an increased cost due to clearing fees and margin requirements. So there's a balance here. The SEC proposals will also require clearinghouses to ensure broad access to clearing services, which involves careful consideration of the various client clearing models, which are complex and our members need to focus on. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's a perfect segue to our guest. Scott, can you tell us about him? Sure. I'll be speaking with Frank LaSala, President and CEO of Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, or DTCC. As many of our listeners know, DTCC subsidiary is the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation, or FIC, currently the only clearing agency approved to clear U.S. Treasuries. I'll be interested to talk to Frank about what the proposals will mean for his business and specifically how it will impact fixed client clearing models. Sounds good. Let's bring Frank home. Frank, thanks for joining me. It's great to have you on The Swap. Scott, it's always good to be with you. Thank you for inviting me and really appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts on Treasury clearing and where it's going. So thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. It's a hot topic. I'm sure everybody listening will be interested to hear your comments. So let's get into it. The Securities and Exchange Commission has published several proposals relating to the U.S. Treasury market, including a proposal on September 2022 for clearing of certain cash U.S. Treasury securities and repos. What do you see as the primary benefit of increased clearing, and are there benefits more pronounced for repos? Yeah, I think, so Scott, obviously a great question, and I think the answer is multifaceted. So let me take it sort of from the top down. This Treasury clearing proposal has implications. I think many of them are positive. And hopefully the audience really will listen in because it is important to get ahead of it. This is a big deal, if you will. And so hopefully I'll try to touch on some of the things that I think will resonate with the audience and sort of put that in perspective, why it's important to really focus on this a little bit more. So just a couple of things. Overall, to your question, 
Greater adoption of clearing would improve the resilience and strength of the U.S. Treasury market. I think we could all agree on that. I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, also believe that central clearing provides a number of interrelated benefits that not only reduce risk, but they also improve the efficiency and stability of the market. And these benefits are equally applicable to Treasury cash as well as Treasury repo activity. So just a couple of things I'd enumerate. First, participants benefit from netting. So under the fixed income clearing corp rules, which is FIC, part of DTCC, each participant's payment or delivery obligations and entitlements are netted down into a single net payment obligation, or we refer to it as the entitlement. Multilateral netting substantially reduces the buildup of credit exposure and the knock-on effects such as risk that can have on the market. So I do think that netting overall, very critical, reduces risk, makes settlement easier and more straightforward. The second is that firms benefit from centralized, transparent, and standardized risk management. So while some risk will remain after netting, and it does, FIC reduces and manages that remaining risk through a comprehensive risk management program that is centralized, standardized, transparent, and subject to extensive regulatory oversight, which we think is a benefit. Another important component of this is that FIC collects margin, called the clearing fund, from each direct participant at least twice daily using a value at risk, or we'll refer to it as VAR model, that evaluates the potential market price risk of the direct participant's portfolio of thick cleared transactions. So that's sort of the second benefit. And then lastly, central counterparties, I'll refer to them going forward as CCPs, help preserve market stability and limit fire sale risk. So what does that mean? In the event of a default in the bilateral space, counterparties to the defaulted market participant must separately take action to close out the defaulter's positions. And this can result in what we'll call a fire sale or price surges, especially when bilateral participants have not collected sufficient margin or have not pre-positioned enough liquidity to address a default scenario. By contrast, as a CCP, FIC centrally manages any default, taking market action in a more orderly manner, and in certain instances, in coordination with other market utilities, such as though the cross-margining arrangement with CME. And then finally, last part on this is, Novation to FIC allows direct participant dealers to calculate their exposures on the U.S. Treasury repo transactions facing FIC on a net basis for both balance sheet and regulatory capital purposes. That just makes it more advantageous for bank-affiliated dealers, who are very important, to engage in treasury repos. So, you know, that was a lot, but these are really important parts of what we think brings to the table the benefit of more netting and what the treasury clearing proposal is actually bringing to the table. Excellent. Now, those are the pluses to all of this. Are there any obstacles or potential risks associated with increased clearing of treasuries? There's always the cost issue, right? You have dealer clearing today, what are some of the challenges with expanding it even further to the customer? And are those challenges, do they differ by repo versus cash? You know, so Scott, that's a really good question. And let me sort of come at it from a couple of perspectives. Currently, 
U.S. Treasury market activity, both Treasury cash and repo activity, is split between two disparate clearing processes. Bilaterally cleared transactions, which I touched on a little earlier, and centrally cleared transactions via FIC. This bifurcation introduces greater risk into this market. Now, while we believe greater adoption of clearing would benefit the U.S. Treasury market, this is fundamentally a market structure change, and we want to make sure that we consider and we approach implementation of any expansion in a manner that continues to serve the purposes of mitigating risk and ensure the market stability and resiliency. And to further that objective, we believe three things are important, and they're equally important to cash as well as repos. First, it's important to maintain open access. So if treasury clearing agencies and their participants were required to adopt only certain access models, these limitations would likely close off access to some market participants, force direct and independent participants to adopt models that are incompatible with their needs or goals, reduce the capacity of direct participants to use clearing as a means of facilitating market liquidity, give rise to concentration, and increase the cost of clearing. Therefore, a single access model should not be dictated. That's one thing that's very important to us. Second, it's critical to consider the differences between the U.S. Treasury market and other markets. So, for example, unlike the cleared swaps market, the cleared U.S. Treasury market has evolved organically for nearly four decades and has a wide and diverse variety of participants. Most U.S. Treasury transactions are short-dated, physically settled transactions that present lower credit risk versus long-dated derivative transactions. And as a result, it's not automatically true to think that the rules, procedures, and structures from the other cleared markets, like swaps, are appropriate or won't cause unintended and potentially harmful outcomes for the U.S. Treasury market. And thirdly, safety, soundness, and fixed obligations under its clearing agency obligations remain of paramount importance. So any new central clearing rules should not require or permit FIC or its direct participants to provide access to central clearing at the expense of sound risk management or compliance with obligations. Those are the things that we have to be concerned about and we need to make sure we address as the proposal moves down its path. Excellent. So along with the potential clearing mandate, the SEC did put in their rules broadening access to clearing. And this might kind of conflict a little bit with what you said, or at least give you a challenge. Can you talk us through how fixed current client clearing models might evolve in this space? Sure. No, no, happy to do that. And you're right. It probably needs a little clarity. Look, thick has been regularly engaging with regulators, trade associations, industry groups, and a wide array of market participants to raise awareness of how an expansion of the clearing would impact firms and how FIC's open access approach could facilitate expansion. FIC offers a variety of different models through which market participants can clear their activity directly at FIC or indirectly through another clearing member. I'll go over those in a minute, but you know, as a reminder to the audience, you can find all of this information that I'm about to cover with greater detail in our dedicated DTCC microsite, which is ustclearing.com. So it's ustclearing, one word, dot com. 
Fixed client clearing model includes its sponsored service as well as its prime brokerage and correspondent clearing services. We have multiple models. Each of fixed client clearing models facilitates both FCM style clearing arrangements as between clients and their clearing intermediators, whereby client activity with third parties is given up to the intermediary for clearing, as well as activity where the client and the clearing intermediaries are trading counterparties. And in terms of how those models might evolve as treasury market structure evolves, FIX certainly welcomes further dialogue with the industry regarding what enhancements to those models might best serve the market. So Scott, a point I really want to drive home is we at DTCC through FIC are very open-minded and very willing to engage with the industry on this. We know we don't have all the answers. Our team welcomes the dialogue and we've actually engaged a lot and we've tried to open up right through the micro site I just talked about through industry groups like your own and some forums that have been designed for this. We engage and we could do it any way you all want, your members want, but we want to have that dialogue. We think it's really, really important. Excellent. Now, implementation, these are complex integrations, having the right clearing model, getting the right connections operationally, maybe deciding to go through an intermediary or whatever it's going to be. What's the ideal time from finalization of the rule to implementation? And do you favor uh, phasing in of these rules? Yeah, this is a good topic. It's one we talk about a lot internally here. And it's something that we actually spoke about in our comment letter to the SEC about the proposal. And like everyone, we'll be very focused on understanding where the SEC comes out on this point, given that the proposal did not give much detail on timing or phasing. Given the complexity and extent of changes that will be necessary, we recommend engaging in a consultative process after rules are finalized by the SEC so that market participants have the opportunity to specifically comment on timing after the full scope of the clearing requirement is known. It's a little hard because there's a lot of open questions that still need to be answered. So we support the adoption of a careful phased implementation schedule beginning with the customer segregation requirement in 2025, enabling firms to have a full year to prepare for the new rules after the expected implementation of T plus one. So here in the United States, for many of your members who, who aren't here, we're all heads down right now, making sure we hit that May 28th deadline for T1. And we wanna make sure that not only ourselves, but the industry have ample times to allocate the appropriate resources for both of these very critical initiatives. This sort of goes back to the point I made earlier about how this proposal is at core a fundamental change to the U.S. Treasury market structure. And so implementation is really critical to ensuring that this transformation of the world's most important financial market occurs smoothly and obviously without undue disruption. Fantastic. Well, you mentioned that customer margin has to be collected and held separately. How important are these changes, both from an operation standpoint, but also in terms of customer protection? And does this require you to make any changes to your operations in light of the proposal? Yeah, Scott, this is a critically, critically important point that you're raising. And I'm glad you sort of brought it up because, again, it's one of those things we talk about a lot here at DTCC. And we're, as you might imagine, engaging with the regulators and all our constituents on it. But just to bring it back a little bit, the proposal would result in several important changes to fix operations and risk management, including how thick would handle customer activity and margin, to your question, right? Today, 
FIC generally does not require the proprietary or what we'll refer to as house activity of its members to be segregated from the cleared activity of its members' customers on its books and records. This framework is largely driven by a historical desire to prioritize the efficiencies of transaction and margin netting. Now, under the SEC's Treasury clearing proposal, these paradigms would change. And as the proposal would require FICS to calculate, collect, and hold house and customer margins separately. So the SEC's Treasury clearing proposal would also create the option to calculate and collect margin associated with customer activity on a gross or net basis, depending on the client clearing model selected by the member and whether the member is seeking capital relief under the customer protection rules for broker deal of customers outlined in the Exchange Act 15C33. So that's really important. And that's sort of how we've been thinking about it and talking about it. Let me build on that a little bit because I think it's true that DTCC and CME recently announced enhancements to the existing customer cross-margining arrangement. I think this has some real cost benefits. Is that how you guys look at it? You know, Scott, we did do the announcement. We're really excited about it. We're happy to work with the CME. And the cross-margining effort will not be specific. I want to be clear about this. It will not be specifically impacted by the SEC's proposal to expand central clearing of treasury activity. That said, the importance of efficient cross-margining opportunities across Treasury cash and repo and Treasury futures activity becomes even more important to the extent more Treasury cash and repo activity is required to be centrally cleared. So we recently surveyed firms on this topic, and they commented that FIX should extend its cross-margining arrangement with CME to include end-user customer positions in addition to the house positions of FIC and CME common members for which cross-margining is offered today. FIC supports the expansion of cross-margining as it will more closely tie margin requirements to transaction risk. So Scott, I think the important point here is we are looking for ways and we'll work with participants and industry groups wherever necessary to really get those efficiencies out of netting. And I think part of the CME agreement is, as I said, it's starting with firm and house. We hopefully, over time, will extend it to customers. And anytime we can cross margin and free up more liquidity and hopefully take less pressure off balance sheet, it's a win-win. And I think what's very interesting, and it's funny, I think about this a lot, it's one thing to free up liquidity in a zero interest rate environment. It's quite another, when at least in the US, we're at 500 basis points. Our Fed funds are between five and a quarter, five and a half. That's real money to the industry. So anytime that we could free up liquidity, provide it back to the industry, hopefully give some balance sheet, it's a win-win. And that's one of the reasons why we're excited about this first initiative, which I hope we at DTCC can work on many fronts with different industry participants like CME to free up more liquidity and provide what I think the industry is really looking for. So this is this is really exciting. Excellent. Now, of course, we have clearing today, as you've well articulated. Have you seen more participants clear on a voluntary basis in the recent years as a result of whether this proposal or just deciding that clearing is something that they need to do? And what has maybe caused that increase or decrease? And further, would a mandate bring significant numbers of new entities into clearing? I think a mandate by definition would, but how would that affect the existing members? How do you think about scaling this? 
Yeah, no, it's got, look, that's a multifaceted question. I want to make sure I answer each part of it. So the first part of your question is the answer is yes. We've seen an increase in central clearing of U.S. Treasury activity over the past several years due to an increase in buy-side firms voluntarily participating in clearing, particularly through fixed sponsored services. So recently, this service reached a new milestone in daily volumes of 780 billion U.S. dollars. And so this significant growth has been enabled through several recent expansions of the service, including the addition of the Sponsored General Collateral Service, which has now exceeded $130 billion daily in activity. However, the amount of voluntary cleared buy-side treasury activity FIC observes at any given time is always a function of market conditions and the relative importance of balance sheet and capital efficiency opportunities for the sponsoring member, which Novation to FIC enables as compared to the cost of clearing. So for example, margin, CCLF, and fees. Where the cost of capital outweighs the cost of clearing, we typically see buy-side firms and their sponsoring members opportunistically utilize central clearing to relieve capital constraints and increase their ability to transact. So when the capital constraints are less severe, Firms typically prefer to transact more actively outside central clearing, and in turn, our clearing buy-side volumes become more muted. Also, there's still quite a bit of treasury activity, both cash and repo, that has not yet been brought into central clearing on a voluntary basis. According to our recent treasury clearing survey, our member firms estimate submitting to us in aggregate an additional $1.6 trillion in incremental buy-side treasury activity if the SEC's treasury clearing proposal were implemented. That's pretty significant. $1.6 trillion? Yeah. That's amazing. It's a quantum leap. It's pretty impressive. So exactly how much of that incremental activity will be from buy-side firms that already have cleared relationships that may be required to ratchet up their cleared volumes versus brand new participants in the cleared ecosystem is unknown at this point. However, given the robust list of buy-side firms FIC already has as sponsored members, there are over 2,200 buy-side firms in membership today, we expect it will likely be a mix of both types of increases. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. And if the numbers are remotely close, that's a lot of money. You're in charge of a lot of responsibility. So let's, for the risk managers out there, let's talk about the FIC default resources that are available for loss mutualization and whether FIC has a separate initial margin default fund structure like we see commonly used in the derivative CCPs. What's the safety mechanism when things go wrong? Absolutely, Scott. And you know what? We don't want to forget our risk managers here. They're near and dear to our hearts. It's a good point. So Right now, FIC does not maintain separate pools of initial margin and default fund. Rather, FIC maintains a single clearing fund and applies clearing fund requirements exclusively to its FIC GSD netting members. So GSD is the government securities division of FIC. That's where the treasuries actually go through. By exclusively, I mean that the clearing fund is posted to FIC by the participant But the member and its clients, the indirect participants, have flexibility to select who ultimately funds the obligations to cover the client or the indirect participant activity. This is a key difference between the structure of fixed default risk management resources 
as compared to the structures you might see at other clearing houses, like derivatives clearing organizations, DCOs. Now, all of that said, I would note two things. First, our current default risk management structure is regulated and supervised under the same international risk management standards applied to any other clearinghouse. The CPMI IOSCO principles for financial market infrastructure. Second, as with all things, we continue to be dynamic and flexible in response to market structure changes and the evolving needs of our clients and stakeholders. As we think about the potential changes the SEC's Treasury clearing proposal might bring, we are and will remain very open to the future dialogue with the industry and its supervisors regarding the optimal structuring of fixed risk management resources. It's also important to note that the SEC's Treasury clearing proposal, if adopted, would establish a structure that brings FIC closer to the initial margin structure used by other clearinghouses. This is with respect to the proposal's treatment of any margin postings by indirect participants for which their broker-dealer clearing intermediary is seeking a debit in the SEC Rule 15C33 formula. We think this is really important. And Scott, I might say, I encourage all of you listening to really focus on this. This is an important development for us in basically being able to take the debit in for rehypothecated securities. I'll be honest with you, when I looked at the client survey results, this is my opinion, this is my view, I can't prove it. I got the sense that not everybody had focused on it as much as I would have thought, could be me, but I would encourage any of the listeners here on the podcast to really take a look at that. So just to put a finer point on, I hope people will appreciate it. As we read the proposal, any indirect participant margin held in a 15C33 account structure would be segregated by FIC similarly to the legal segregation with operational commingling or LSOC, L-S-O-C, approach used in the cleared swap space and therefore would not be usable by FIC in its mutualized default loss waterfall. So again, I would encourage the listeners to take a closer look at this when they get an opportunity because it really is important. And I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to bring it up. Well, as we've learned in my history with the CFTC, et cetera, clearing matters, details matter. When there's this much money at play, at risk, exposed, you just have to make sure you know how you're going to use your money when things are going right, but what are the consequences when things go badly? And we should always be aware of that. That's what we like to remind our members and participants in the derivatives business. So thank you. That was a great explanation of the complexity around the SEC proposal and how you're going to manage it. I'd like to switch to a different role in the industry that you handle, switching from clearing to touching reg reporting. The CFTC currently implemented reforms to its own swap data reporting rules that date back to 2010, and other jurisdictions are updating their rules as well. And over the next couple of years, we're going to be seeing some new re reporting requirements that are based on these updates. While the data standards are much more consistent across jurisdiction, they certainly aren't identical by any stretch. What further steps can be taken to enable accurate and efficient aggregation of data? In other words, each jurisdiction has required its own reporting rules, but at the same time, regulators need a global perspective. And you kind of sit at the middle of that. You've got reporting repositories around the world. How are you going to play a role in that aggregation? 
Let me preface what I'm about to say with this. I hope I don't come off in a highfalutin sort of way, but I am very, very proud of the work that DTCC has done over the years on this. And to your, you know, just listening to your question, people can get a sense of how naughty and complicated it is, right? But it's something that regulators want, and it's something we have as a responsibility have to deliver to the industry. And so what I want to say is, I don't think that there is an organization that's been more active in working groups and public forums to push harmonization and standardization of global trade reporting rules than DTCC. I absolutely believe that. And the global requirements will never be 100% aligned. We've just got to be honest about it and just accept that as fact. But the incoming derivatives rule changes in North America, Europe, the UK, and Asia represent significant progress, and we're very encouraged by it. These new rules, based on CPMI IOSCO recommendations for the adoption of unique product identifiers, unique trade identifiers, and critical data elements, shift regulatory regimes toward the harmonization that was lacking 10 years ago. So again, check the box, positive, big step in the right direction. Now, while, as I said, jurisdictional differences persist, the introduction of UPIs and CDE together with exciting technology advances, which we're all looking at, I do believe create a great opportunity to use data in new ways. And I think that's really what we want to unlock. And I think we as an industry, not just DTCC, but we as an industry should try to unlock. I think there's a lot of opportunity that's in front of us. I would also share with you that DTCC analysis shows that there will be sufficient harmonization to amalgamate data and build a better overall picture of market risks once the new rules are introduced. We're looking at data amalgamation, technology, proof of concepts internally, and believe that technology is no longer a barrier to using the data. However, got to be straight about this, there are issues that will need to be addressed, such as governance, data ownership, and the framework that regulators would allow this activity to operate in. So to advance it, we think it's critical that the industry and regulators understand and start to address the issues associated with data sharing, and that's really going to be a, a critical part of this. And lack of such a framework will just reduce the potential benefits of harmonized data rules. So look, Scott, we've got wood to chop. We at DTCC, we as the industry, I think in working closely with the global regulators on this, but we are optimistic and we do think that we're moving in the, we've moved a step and we'll be moving in steps in the right direction. But you're very polite the way you put it. Maybe as a former regulator, I could say, A, I told you so. And B, <laughs> you got to sometimes get out of your own way and, and let the industry maybe potentially help you here. And uh, I think there is a lot of technology. There's a lot more standardization, a lot of effort being put behind at the industry level that can deliver solutions that'll deliver better product for both reporting standards and delivering regulatory oversight. Now, you mentioned technology solutions that you're leveraging. Can you expound on that a little bit? Any specific technology that you're thinking about? I mean, everybody's talking about AI. You got an AI bot back there sorting this out. As DTCC, we are always looking at new technology. And clearly AI, I've talked about this in the past, AI has just become so powerful. I think we're just beginning to unleash, or maybe I should say it the other way, harness the potential of what it could bring. But we at DTCC will always be looking at new technology, and we're very optimistic about it. But what I would say generally, and this is, I'll tip my hat to you and the organization that you're responsible for, 
we do believe that is this digital regulatory reporting model has a key role to play. And that can inform a lot of this. As global policymakers continue to consider the future steps that may be needed to achieve data amalgamation, there is the potential for ISDA's common domain model and DRR to be leveraged as a tool to achieve further consistency in the data. And this is all wrapped up in technology, right? It's what we've been talking about. So continuing to explore new technology and digitization is important, and it'll drive greater results from the collected data. I just said that. I think it's worth repeating. I think in working our organizations, is the DTC and many of our member firms together, I'm sure we can find common ground, figure out how to leverage technology better, and just help us in terms of collecting data and using it in a more powerful way. I would also say DTCC has been on our own digitization journey for quite a while. Today, our GTR service leverages modern technology to deliver value-added services to the industry. Leveraging, for example, Amazon Web Services and Snowflake, we've had a great success, both working closely and partnering with Amazon and Snowflake. And we think there's more there and there's more potential. And by leveraging cloud technology, DTCC's GTR is able to use computer capacity on demand to provide even greater service capabilities, which is crucial given the volume of data DTCC GTR processes. 400 million transactions a day and a historical footprint of four petabytes. So that's pretty impressive. So Scott, I think the key is not just the software that can help transform what we do. It's also the hardware. It's leveraging the cloud, looking at infrastructure, making sure we've got backup. And obviously resiliency, failover and state is always paramount and always in the mix for us. So what I would also say on this is, you know, cloud technology has also enabled DTCC to operate multiple test environments in a cost-effective manner. And more user acceptance testing, you know, as we all know, as UAT environments can be run simultaneously, which is crucial with the various regulatory reporting rule changes, which are fast approaching or already underway. So, you know, we're looking at technology on a number of different fronts, software, hardware, coupled with resiliency. Obviously, cybersecurity is top of mind for us. That's critical, it's, and it's going to continue to grow. And so we're looking at this on, as I said, multiple fronts in many different ways. But we're excited, and, and I'm optimistic about the future. I'm optimistic about the technology, and I'm optimistic about the way forward. Fantastic. That's great. Now, before I finish, I'd like to ask a little bit more about you. How and why did you start your career in financial services? And if you had to choose a different career, what would you pick? I like to say the industry found me. I've been doing this for 35 plus years. And, you know, I was very fortunate throughout my career. I was always on the securities processing side. I liked the idea of technology and financial services. They're just so inextricably linked. And I find it fun and exciting. And the caliber of individuals that are in our part of the industry the business is incredible. I mean, so many smart people doing so much in the background and a lot of times going unnoticed, right? And there's something that I find fun about it and I've always enjoyed it. And so I was very blessed and lucky that I was able to be brought into an industry that I took to very carefully. And, and as you know, Scott, you got to love what you do and then it's really not work. And so I really feel privileged in the role I'm in. The other thing that I was always fortunate about is because I was always on the securities servicing, securities processing side of the industry, I always knew the importance of DTCC. And so, as you know, 
I was given the opportunity to lead this organization a little over a year ago. It was sort of a dream come true. I'm blessed with a great management team, great colleagues, a great culture here. And, you know, being put in this role, working with individuals like you, for example, as the industry evolves, it's just exciting to be able to sort of put a little bit of your fingerprint on the future of the industry. You know, we talked about T1, we talked about treasury clearing, we talked about new and exciting technology. Our industry's just got so much in front of it and we can help investors, both retail and institutional, help price discovery. All these things are just really, really fun and a big responsibility that I think both you and I have and the industry has. And so just excited about what the future is bringing us. And I'm grateful to be just maybe a, a little bitty part of it. What was plan B if financial services didn't come along? Well, I'd love to say I would have been a professional baseball player, but that really wouldn't be true. I was never that good, although I'd love to do that. I did have a couple of things. Some people might know my father was a professional tenor sax player. Probably would have ended up in the music business, which would have been fun. Maybe doing some studio work. I actually played trumpet and I enjoyed that very much. And I think that may have been my second best option if it weren't financial services. Well, fantastic. This is a great conversation. Really grateful you came on the podcast to explain the nuances of the clearing rule and how DTCC and FIC are going to provide solutions going forward. Thanks for joining us. Scott, thank you. It's always a pleasure speaking with you and always enjoy our conversations. Thank you for the opportunity. That was a great overview of the issues. And it was really interesting to hear how FIC is preparing for the proposals, thinking about the proposals, and also hearing a bit about the client clearing models and the loss mutualization as well. Now, as we said right at the start of the episode, the US Treasury market plays a key role in global financial markets, including collateral management and derivatives. But to state the obvious, treasuries aren't derivatives. So Scott, what's our role in all of this? Well, I'd like to highlight a couple of things. First is this mission is to facilitate safe and efficient derivative markets. To achieve that, we really need a treasury market that is liquid, resilient, even during stress. And we've seen a couple of stress incidents, particularly 2020 COVID related. As a result, it's important to feed the views of our members to regulators, which is what we've been doing. We ran a survey last year to get the industry's views on the impact of increased clearing of cash and treasury securities and repos, and we've discussed the results with regulators at length. Second, we've spent years solving for the introduction of mandatory clearing in the derivatives market, which include the development of standard client clearing and documentation, segregation, all of which Frank touched on today. We're confident that we can bring these same experiences to bear here on the Treasury market. Obviously, it's early days and we'll wait for the final proposal, but we very much think there's a role for ISDA to play in supporting the implementation, the integration, and the operational solutions that will be required when and if this proposal is finalized. Yeah, all we need to do now is to wait for the final rules, which, who knows, could even be released before this episode gets published. Let's hope not, though. In the meantime, the survey on Treasury Clearing that Scott mentioned is available on the ISDA website, so do take the opportunity to look at that. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.